Welcome to the Waste Not What Not podcast. I'm Philippa Ross, human ecologist, enthusiologist, author and energy healer, bringing you inspirational interviews, news and tips to rebuild the relationship between people and the planet the way nature intended by revitalising our natural resources, minimising waste and maximising human potential. I trust you'll discover seeds of hope for a vibrant future so you can cultivate and transform them to suit your own lifestyle in order for us to collectively create a world where reverence for the diversity of all life is honoured. You'll find all the show notes in the description and lots more about me and my work at philipparos.com. And don't forget, if you like what you hear, be sure to share far and wide. Hello, Wastebusters. Welcome to episode 22. Today's theme focuses on the hidden wonders of our natural world. And there is no greater advocate for the conservation of the planet and her inhabitants than the legendary biologist and natural historian David Attenborough, who celebrated his 96th birthday last Sunday, the 8th of May. Can you believe he spent nearly 70 years curating programmes about the environment and wildlife from every corner of the world? While not quite so widely known as David, my guest this week, Gary Cook, provides a fascinating insight into the world of plants and how they enrich our spiritual, emotional, mental and physical well-being. If you've been following me for a while, you'll have come to expect the odd item of interest relating to either Antarctica or penguins, and this week I bring you both. US researchers have discovered large volumes of water in the sediments beneath the Willans Ice Stream at the edge of West Antarctica and the Ross Ice Shelf, expanding scientists' understanding of the hydrology on the continent. Up until now, it was believed that water flows from the surface of ice masses into the depths, collecting and resting on bedrock, which then forms a network of lakes lying on layers of sediment. The recent discovery has given weight to speculations that there are actually deep groundwater systems beneath the sediments, opening up a whole new understanding of the flow dynamics of the glaciers, which is likely to reveal more secrets hidden beneath the ice in Antarctica. Now to some sad news about the plight of the emperor penguin, who are facing a serious risk of extinction within the next 30 to 40 years because of climate change, fishing and tourism. They need solid ice to nest fledgling chicks between April and December. If the sea freezes later or melts prematurely, the emperor family cannot complete its reproductive cycle. And if the water reaches the newborn penguins, which are not ready to swim and do not have waterproof plumage, they die of the cold and drown. In the past three years, all the chicks from the Haley Bay colony in the Weddell Sea have died. The rise of tourism and fishing have also put the emperor's future at risk by affecting krill, which is their main source of food. The South African penguins have been luckier and are thriving thanks to the great work of the South African Foundation for the Conservation of Coastal Birds, who rescued a hundred penguin chicks abandoned by their parents due to the flooding of nests after recent rainstorms across Algo Bay. I'll put a link in the show notes if you'd like to adopt a penguin and have your donation go towards helping to purchase critical supplies, veterinary care, fish purchases and rehabilitation consumables. While there is so much yet to be discovered about the planet, we do know how us humans are contributing to the disruption of our ecosystem, and yet permits to explore and extract resources are still being sought, with what appears to be a total disregard for the disruption it has on the biodiversity of life, never mind the so-called commitment made at the Paris Agreement. There's a petition going round to gather support to stop all oil and gas exploration and production in Guyana, sparked because Exxon Oil Company are about to embark on a massive drilling project to pump over 10 billion barrels of oil right off the Caribbean Sea, home to endangered turtles, whales and precious marine life. And if you need proof that signing a petition works, a two-year campaign by Save Our Sands Group here in New Zealand have won the first round to stop far shore and sand mining in Mungafai and Pākari. Auckland Council refused consent because of a lack of consideration on the effects of global warming, the threat to endangered birds and marine life, the economic impact on the communities and the adverse effects on Maori culture values, biodiversity, coastal ecology and coastal processes of the area. 
all strong arguments to support the next two applications for the remaining mid and nearshore applications due to be heard in late July, August. The backlash from the corporate industry are scaremongering people saying this will cause an immediate crisis for road and building construction industries. I say yay, there are alternatives. It's time to be innovative and do things differently. I've seen old tyres being repurposed for roading for starters. No doubt there are oodles of others. Let's use the impetus from this success story to stop all sand mining in New Zealand by showing your support for the Greenpeace petition to do this. And while we're at it, let's shift our expectations to create new norms so we're no longer surprised to hear news about the devastation of 91% of reefs being bleached surveyed on Great Barrier Reef the fourth mass bleaching event since 2016 and the sixth to occur on the Great Barrier Reef since 1998. Nature is not out there. It's an integral part of our very existence. My guest Gary Cook extends Aristotle's counsel to look deep into nature to find the answers, advising us to listen deeply to nature in order to hear the symphony of sounds that sustain harmony and health for people and the planet. Pin your ears back to hear how Gary's curiosity to explore the hidden realms enabled him to discover the intangible secrets of the plant world that then revealed the wisdom of the natural world and ways to build a rapport with nature. Welcome to the show, Gary. It's an absolute pleasure to have you with me. And I have confessed to my listeners before, but I just love these podcasts because it's a bit of self-indulgence and it gives me a chance to have a deeper connection to the people that I've come across in my life. I've been following you and your magical work, but I have no idea of the depth of it. So I'm really looking forward to discovering more about you and the magical world of plants. Well, that's lovely. What a lovely introduction. And uh, likewise, it's so wonderful to be able to sit here with you and, and share through your medium. This gives all of us, both of us, everyone involved, ways and means of putting out interesting and important knowledge. And this is what it's about. Sometimes it may be a modern interpretation, but it is often very ancient knowledge. And it has to be, say, put into context which would suit the people of today. And I'm not necessarily talking about the young people of today because they, they're in their own little journey. Sometimes it's not until a little later on or midlife that things start to come together. And then we start to explore the deeper aspects of who we are and the deeper aspects of the planet Earth, of, of the mother of Papa Tuanuku. Absolutely. And it's really a matter of remembering. And, you know, one of the things that I want to be able to put across is the fact that we go through life and we take so much for granted. I was sitting on my deck this morning looking out and I'm privileged to live in the hills surrounded by beautiful flora and fauna overlooking the ocean. And I just thought to myself, imagine if this was all just concrete and doom and gloom and how much nature really adds to our lives. We have no idea of the huge benefits behind it. And this is why I wanted to talk to you this morning. What sparked or reignited that spark inside you to discover more about plants and the environment? Well, sometimes it's a, uh, a bit of drama in one's life or a traumatic experience. My traumatic experience wasn't all that great. I fell over on our steep property here and uh, broke bones in my leg and ankle. So suddenly I found for many weeks I was sitting at home, as you do, with the leg up. And then I discovered that there were some very clever scientists out there who had for many, many years been developing little devices that you could actually, with little uh, soft electrodes, put onto leaves of plants or trees right. and pick up little impulses coming from the tree and through a MIDI system, for want of a better term, then turn those little impulses into musical notes. And then with headphones or with a speaker, you could hear the tree singing. Um, I mean, I've got something going here at the moment. That is coming from a plant that I sat beside when I was convalescing with the device I bought in from uh, Italy, and we started to create music, and it started to be very simple music, just ping, 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 ping notes. And now she and I, Sabella is her name, named after my great, great, great grandmother from the Shetland Islands, 
she and I have developed an incredible rapport. And over the years, she has traveled to many places with me when I go out and give demonstrations, when I am out doing talks in uh, natural places, like at festivals and things, I always uh, manage to find a tree growing right there, which we can connect to. And we can all sit around and listen to that tree singing and then learn to actually interact with the song from that tree. It's intriguing. And it's just a incredible use of, of the science and within each plant and each tree there is an awful lot of action going on up and down the trunks or the stems and the branches out the leaves it's with a photosynthesis bringing in the sun bringing in the carbons of course and converting the carbons to plant sugar and then of course the plants putting out oxygen so within those uh, movements going on inside the plant it creates the equivalent of a static electricity And so these electrodes pick up these little bursts. And if you are connected with the plant or the tree, its response is amazing. It'll respond to you as a human, your thoughts, your your speech, even just a hand on the trunk or on the leaves. And so then you get this incredible rapport. And so over the last seven or eight years that Sabella and I have been playing together, we have an incredible relationship where... I enjoy her music so much. I, I give her free reign, but also I will talk to her and sort of say, let's put four or five diff- different instruments in here. Can you play all these at one time? Or can you play them at different levels and bring them together and to, to make a tune? So away we go. So that's, that's amazing. Do you know, one of my guests, David Martin, I don't know if you've come across him, but the basis of his, his whole philosophy on life, he describes it as covalence. And where everything has its own frequency, but when we bring it together, it increases the potential that could not happen on its own. And I was just imagining, you know, people go to trees, um, say, and sit under them and wonder why they have such a calming effect. And again, it's because I work with energy, it's all to do with the frequency and, again, how we interact with that tree. Do you hear, when you put the electrodes on, do you hear a different song from the tree as it's responding to the people around you? All of this, and also there's a seasonal difference and also the time of the day. Oh, wow. It can vary because Mm. I, I would say that at the peak of the day when the sun or the light is at its most intense, the plant is incredibly busy bringing in the sunlight and putting out the oxygen and bringing in the carbon dioxide, et cetera. So there's a lot of business going on. It's interesting, on a number of occasions, I've had the privilege of working with live solo musicians, such as a cello player, violinist, hang drums, and a harpist. And we've sat out in the garden with one particular plant that I often sit with. It's a young kawakawa bush. And you know the kawakawa in New Zealand is an Mm -hmm. incredible healing plant in its own right. And so these various musicians have been able to sit with Kawakawa or sometimes with Sabella and play how they play the cello, doing a number of chords, stopping, listening. Sabella or Kawakawa would respond and play back her own chords. She would stop and the musician would carry on. We were seeing what was happening uh, between them and the musician opening his or herself up to that particular moment in that time and the plant obviously responding to the sound. And it's amazing. And of course, what occurs when I demonstrate this to groups of people and often they will lie down on the ground and make themselves comfortable. It's almost like a meditation. Then we'll just play the Rimu tree or whatever we're connected with and they just go somewhere. So it helps to bring people into a more relaxed state. It's nature's harmony, isn't it? I was just wondering, have you done any experimentation on the polar opposite scale to see how they respond to sound or the environment that they don't like? I've never actually done that. What what I've done is mostly things that they like. I realise how sensitive plants and trees are. Right. Very, very sensitive indeed. Back in the 60s, there was an experiment done by a man called Cleve Baxter well-known experimenter in America. And he worked for the FBI and he was a scientist who was helping them develop all of their lie detection equipment and okay. getting you know, more refined. And he had read 
a book called The Secret Life of Plants written in the 60s. Mm. And where people spoke about the relationship between everybody else and the plants and humans. And um, he thought he'd try an experiment one weekend when he was working in his laboratory in his office in his lab. And he had a plant in the office area. And I think it might have been a figus or a figus, whatever way you pronounce it. And so he hooked it up to the lie detection equipment. And he thought, I'm just going to turn it on and I'm going to give my thoughts to the tree and to see what reaction there is. So he put out good thoughts. Nothing happened. We're just flatlining. So I thought, oh, okay, well, let's stir it up a bit. I'll just be a bit antagonistic towards it with thoughts and words. Flatline. He thought, okay, well, what I'll do, I'll go a big step further, dive into my fellow co-worker's office and get his box of matches out of the drawer because he's a pipe smoker. And I'll bring it in and I will light and bring a flame close to the, the plant and see what happens. He did not even open the box of matches. Suddenly, on the thought, the thing came to life and it started to go like this. His work developed even further. He would set up laboratory experiments with scientists or fellow scientists and technicians where there'd be uh, two shielded labs. Okay, there'd be one lab where there'd be four or five plants which would bring in all the workers there and sort of say, put your good vibrations into this plant and think loving things of it. And then he had another separate room, which is all inside like a Faraday cage, and where one worker was selected to go into one plant in there and give it Watto with his thoughts and its actions and think bad things to it. The reaction was very, very positive. But the reaction that he measured was terrible. The plant was going down. It was depressed. And then they finished that experiment. And, of course, this was a big plant laboratory he was doing this in. He was working with them. And these people were plant specialists. And this technician who had volunteered found that he could no longer go into any labs where they were doing deep experiments because he would affect the technicians or the scientists' experiments. So Cleve even went to the stage where you would have a plant and a technician would have a rapport with it and they'd be very on really good terms. Send the technician away. In this particular case, I need to cross the other side of America. And he said, while you're over there, I want you to, at a certain time, send your thoughts back to your plant. And he has everything measuring it. And at a certain time, suddenly the plant activated to the thoughts wow. of that technician friend 3,000 miles away or 3,000 kilometers away across America. So it's there. It's tenuous, but it's there. It very you much know. reminds me of Dr. Emoto's work with water. Yes, yeah. I've often said that one of the main catalysts between humans and the plants is the water within us and the water within the plants, because we are 70 to 80% water, the plants likewise. And a tree or a plant is composed of exactly the same minerals as we are, except they are arranged in a totally different manner to what we are as humans. But we are the vessels of water. And I have a feeling that that gives a big connection. Mm. So that's something which I'm ever exploring all these possibilities. Last night, you were telling me a fascinating fact that about 98% of life is plants. 98%. They've brought it up to 99% now. Of all life on this planet is plant life. Now, gosh, you've got to think about this. So that means that you and I, everyone listening to this podcast and all the animals and birds and insects and fish out there are in that 1%. The easy conclusion is we live on a plant planet. Uh, this includes aquatic plants in fresh water and also in the oceans. Mm. So every, every blade of grass, everything, we as humans today take plants and trees for granted. Plants that we eat in our daily food and the vegetables we eat, if we grow them ourselves, we're a bit closer to them. The connections are there more so, I think, with the home gardener, getting your hands on the soil. Mm. There are microbes in the soil which act as a natural antidepressant. There's good research on this, a good antidepressant. So it is such good therapy. Not to wear gloves if you can possibly help it. You know, and you're actually absorbing these through the pores on the skin of your hand. And that's why gardeners become so engrossed in what they're doing. Well, I've always yeah. thought that, you know, we've become very precious about bugs because i mean mike i remember my kids outside playing with worms and things like that and it really builds as you say our immune system and we've got disinfectant for this that and the other which is 
killing our natural habitat, isn't it? Oh, you're quite right. And, and we often, we read research on this and we know from our own experience. And if we have uh, raised children ourselves, we can remember them playing in the open sandpit in the backyard. And I remember our son, you know, picking up a, a cricket and looking at us with a cricket in his mouth and picking out worms and things like this. And this was so incredible that the children were involved, as you say, they're just helping to build up their immune systems. Mm. They can be exposed to these things. And I guess psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, the more exposed we are to nature in one form or another, uh, the Japanese, of course, have a wonderful term for this. I forget the Japanese name, but it's called forest bathing. And the uh, Japanese government about 15 or 20 years ago put out a decree to say that uh, all Japanese people because they're such hard workers and working, you know, intensely long days. You have to get out in the forest and the parks on a regular basis and just walk slowly amongst the trees. And so people do it. And so this became a plant bathing, which is now a more Western term of forest therapy. And you can do courses in America now to learn how to take people into a forest and open them up to everything that's going on around them. And so that is wonderful that 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 is possible. It's so easy to do for ourselves. You know what it's like if you do have the opportunity just to walk on the beach or you go up somewhere to a park, and there may be trees and you walk around there and suddenly you just feel at peace. Yeah. Well, grounding is a very big word being used at the moment, you know, because we're surrounded by technology and, you know, within four walls and things like that. And there's nothing nicer than standing on the grass and absorbing the earth's energy because it really does brings us back to that balanced state it does because with the bare feet you're taking through that energy from the earth it is called earthing in america they hold workshops for earthing they even give the ultimate experience where you will dig a shallow thing out of the earth and you'll lay in that and people will cover you with a thin layer of dirt wow That's real immersion. (laughs) (laughs) It's no wonder kids love building sandcastles because it goes deeper than that, doesn't it? It's not only what they're creating with the sand, and nine times out of ten, they love burying themselves or parents in the sand. Don't they? They talk about a child's play, which adults at the beach always join with what the kids are doing anyhow. They can't keep their hands off. We've got springs on our property here, and over the years, our young grandchildren, there's one place they go and play where the spring comes out and makes a lot of mud. And so they're down there clearing things out, building little mud dams and freeing them, playing in the water in the mud with bare feet. So once again, that's another incredible connection that the children can make. Yeah, and you were talking earlier about your own childhood and, and how there are certain milestones that take us on the path to explore life. And you got so far as talking about um, you broke a few bones and so you made the connection with your grandmother's um, plant. I can't pronounce the name, sorry. <laughs> Is there anything else from your childhood that you can remember that has helped expand where you are now? Yes, yeah. There, there's a couple of things, actually, and they happened in quite quick succession, and probably when I was aged between 10 and about 12. And at that particular young age, my father was running a mercantile a country store at Lake Waikaramoana, which is very remote in the Utawera country, at a little township called Kaitawa, which was a Ministry of Works town involved in building three hydroelectric power stations there. So I was living in this little village, going to the village school and um, with all the children. And here we were living on the edge of one of the greatest wild forests left in New Zealand, the Uruwera, on the southern shores of uh, Lake Waikamawana. So as little 9, 10, 11-year-olds, us little boys would take off into the forest. Now, because my dad had the general store, I was a provador. I supplied things we needed, like <laughs> candles, matches, tin of sardines, cabin bread biscuits, which you remember the old cabin bread as hard as it, you can hardly They're bite revolting. them. They're disgusting. Yeah, yeah but they travelled well. They went well with the tin of sardines, I tell you. And then uh, I'd purloin a rope clothesline, you know, all wound up nicely. And us, three or four, five of us little kids, would take off in the forest hunting for caves to look for, and we'd find a cave. We'd look down to this cave and then we'd decide who was going to go down. We'd tie the rope around the tree, 
drop the other end over and say, away you go. And here, take the candle and the matches and see what's down there. So whoever was the volunteer or the conscript would go down, light the candle and say, oh, yeah, come and have a look down here. So we'd go down there. And they weren't very big caves, but they were full of cave wetters and things like this, you know, and even glowworms. And then there was a little stream we used to follow up, which came down into the power station lake. And this was a stream that the trout used to swim up to a beautiful lake called the Crystal Spring, the most clearest water that you've ever seen. Trout swimming in there just only looked so big because the water was so deep. Sometimes we would go up that way and the pigs had came, wild pigs would come down and be rooting around on the shores. I remember one time one of the boys had been out once with his father on a pig hunting expedition. He said, oh, I know how to catch pigs. He said, I'll get my dad's knife and we'll go up there and catch a pig. We thought, oh, okay, do this. And so away you go up there following up, up the trail, little trail alongside the, the creek from the spring. And we got to some fresh pig rooting and said, okay. Then we went on a bit further and suddenly we heard a sound, which was a pig snorting somewhere. So we immediately turned tail and ran. So we actually did the right thing. We learned the difference between bravery and foolhardiness. <laughs> so the things like that, I learned to tickle trout to lay on your chest as the trout was swimming up to the little stream, put your hand underneath and tickled them, not to catch them. So I had that incredible experience being exposed to nature without really consciously being aware of it, I was just knew I was in a magnificent place. Mm. So from there, we went to live at a place called Te Araroa, which is way up the East Coast. And my sister and myself and one other boy were the only three Pākehā in the class there. And the schools in those days were called district native schools. And of course, all my friends were just young local people. They're all young Māori boys. So we used to go diving off the reefs and bareback horse riding. And I also became aware of history. And this is where going into the kitchen on a Friday night at the marae to help to prepare food for a tangi or a hui, which was going on the next day, I'd hear the okoya and the old ladies talking about things in the kitchen. Some of it stuck behind where we lived with a massive bluff. And on the top there were ancient um, par side, a fourth side par side. I remember climbing right way up to the top up there to explore and look at it for myself. And so that's when I got an interest in uh, New Zealand archaeology. So all these things impressed. I always felt at home in the forest. Talking of forest dwellers, how did fairies come into the picture? Not until more recent time. There was a book published 23, 24 years ago called The Song of the Waitaha, The Story of a Nation. And I read this and it spoke of a tribe of people that were living in New Zealand almost a thousand years before the Polynesian Maori arrived 700 years ago. And I thought, well, this is interesting. How can this be true? So I met uh, Barry Brailsford, the person who had put together the book on behalf of the seven very old Maori elders, the Komatawa, who held the stories, the secret ah. stories of Waitaha. So he wrote the book at their bequest or their behest. And I said, I'm so intrigued by the fact that there were people living here. Where were they? Well, in the book, it had little drawing maps sort of giving a name. But I got more definite information of places that they would live. So Raywin and I set off a lot of parts of the South Island, but mostly in the North Island, going to where these people would have lived just to see if there were traces that they left there. But no, these people lived so close to within nature. They didn't build from stone. Everything they built was from trees and bark and leaves. So every trace that they ever did disappeared. It was the Polynesian Maori, of course, who had to get into the defensive roles where they'd build a little safe village on a hill, put palisades all around and trenches and go into defensive mode because they were often warring with each other, neighbouring tribes or distant iwi. But the original people, the Waitaha, who lived here for a thousand years, they developed into 200 iwi right throughout the country. And they had no wars. They had no weapons. They only had tools. If there was a disputation between people of adjoining tribes or iwi, they would settle it mano to mano. So two people would get there and either do arm wrestling or have a bit of a boxing match. And whoever fell over first lost. They didn't go out and extract Utu or anything like that. So we were able to, um, Raywan and I, move around the country, seeing where these people lived. And of course, then one started to experience things. And Raywan and I did a journey with a large group of people across the ancient Greenstone Trails, which had just been re reopened after being closed for over 100 years. 
And the ancient greenstone trails are where the Waitaha initiated the carrying of Poanamu, the sacred greenstone of New Zealand, up from the rivers of the West Coast over the Browning Pass, right down into the Canterbury side and to a place called the Te Kohanga, which is at a place called Castle Hill, which was there, Waitaha Marae in the South Island. And we went on the ancient trails with the guides. We experienced the places that the ancient people used to walk on carrying the Stone of Peace. And Raywan and I went ahead of the main group. We were flown by helicopter ahead to uh, set up, I think, day four camp. And it was at an old hut. So we had to get firewood. And so we sat on the banks of the Wilberforce River. And we were just sitting there meditating. And suddenly I became aware of voices singing and chanting. I turned around to look at Raywan. She was just turning around to look at me, eyes open. And I said, do you hear that? She said, yes. As soon as we said that, it went. To what was it that we heard? So that was interesting. I thought it just may have been the ancestors, the spirits of the ancestors there. But I have a feeling that I could tie this in nowadays to the Patapairi themselves actually being in their vicinity. Because over a period of time when I was going out to look at ancient sites, trying to find where the white had been living. And I'd often do measurements and things and uh, looking at little mounds of, of dirt and sort of saying, well, was this constructed or is it natural? And I'd sometimes be on my own, miles away from anywhere. I'd be working away and suddenly I'd stop. Something's looking at me, something behind me. And this happened often. I'd whip around quickly to see what was behind me in the forest. Nothing was there. But I was always aware there was something looking at what I was doing. And then, of course, we got to a stage where in the Puriora Forest, where we used to go for retreats, and one particular night, there was a big group of us staying there with some couple of young children, and I had a bunk room to myself, and we'd all gone to bed. And then suddenly, I just snuggled down on my sleeping bag and hadn't sort of gotten to sleep. There was a tapping on my window and laughter, giggling. Children, I thought, what are those kids doing? I thought those young kids went to bed ages ago. So I stumbled out on my sleeping bag in the dark, got up there, pulled the curtains back, threw the window open, nothing out there. So close the window, pull the curtains, sitting back on um, the edge of the bunk, easing my way back into the sleeping bag, and suddenly tap on the window and laugh. This time I was free. I leapt up, threw the curtains back, opened the window, nothing. And there's no way this was a big, long building. There's no way that little kids could have. And I thought, okay, if there's those children, I'm going to go catch them out. So I tore off down the passageway with my torch, opened the door quietly into the bunk room where mum and dad and the kids were sleeping. And there are the two little kids, so fast asleep, right down their sleeping bags. So the next day I said to the Komato, something happened last night. Can you explain it? Oh, he said, that was the Patapairehi. That was the Tūtihu, the young people, the fairy folk, rather. They were out. I said, what? He said, yes. He said, I sneaked out last night to have a cigarette on the back veranda from where I was staying. And he said, they were talking to me. They wanted me to go and play with them like I used to when I was a child. And he said, I had to turn them down. I said, I'm no longer a child. I can't go and play with you like I used to. So he said, they were out last night, and that's who tapped on your window. So suddenly they started to open up other things. Wow. So, yeah. And then so from the fairy side, I started to look deeper into the legends of New Zealand and a lot of Maori legends and folk tales that have been recorded by early Europeans. So there was a lot of interaction. And in the Maori recall of Whakapapa and that, they talk about the fact that when their people or their waka arrived in whatever part of New Zealand and they came to shore into the forests, there were already people living in the forest. And it was not the Waitaha, because these were diminutive people and they were fair of complexion, fair of hair, green or blue eyes. They didn't often see them. They were incredibly elusive. So this is the way the Patapai Rehi were always there, right up to today, for Māori people, still in the forests. And for some Māori people, um, they're very superstitious of them. They have a fear of them because um, some of the stories that were about the Patapai Rehi being a little malicious or very naughty or mischievous. So then I thought when I was doing my research, I started to gather stories. and I gathered a lot of anecdotes up north in particular around the Waipua Forest of farmers and hunters telling about their individual encounters with little people in the forest when they're out there on their own or with their dog. And then I thought, wow, there's something here. So I put together a film crew and we made a, a one-hour documentary. I went with a view 
of either I'm going to get some evidence on film of little fairy people dancing around the forest, which didn't happen, or I'm going to discover that there's still a race of very small people living hidden in the deep forest of New Zealand. They've been here all this time, but they've become so reclusive. You've also written some books, haven't you? I, I did three books in the Secret Land series. Book one was uh, Journeys into the Mystery, The People Before and Deeper into the Mystery. People Before was what I call a serious look at what I call the discarded history of New Zealand. Modern anthropologists and archaeologists and historians threw this out. And they said, well, people observed all these things when they first came here, but they're not relevant. They can't verify all this. And yet there was reports of so many sites and so many artifacts being found in so many different places. And so they wiped us out of the historical record. So we went through all the files that we could find, pulled out all the discarded information and made a book out of it. You get a very broad picture of other aspects of an earlier people that did leave traces here. This reminds me that this is ancient stuff we have forgotten because of the lifestyles that we are actually creating. I believe um, you've made a connection with the importance of um, birdsong as well. I downloaded a piece, um, this is from the Natural History Museum of Great Britain, it was published only a couple of years ago. In a recent survey conducted by the museum, 73% of people reported hearing louder birdsong during COVID-19 lockdown in the UK. Many said it comforted and calmed them at a time of crises, and research shows it really could help improve our mental health. Birdsong appeared to be louder during the UK's lockdown due to a decline in man-made noise. So suddenly, certain aspects of modern society, the noise of traffic and everything going on, even in the cities, nothing was moving. Cars weren't running. People went out and about. And suddenly, they became aware that sound's always been there. So what are those places to listen to? Could something bigger be going on inside our brains when we hear tweeting and singing from parks and gardens? So uh, Dr. Eleanor Ratcliffe, a lecturer in environmental psychology at the University of Surrey, looked at how birdsong sounds may restore attention and alleviate stress. And a piece that I read a few years ago, scientists had found that the dawn chorus of birds is very important to all the plants and trees within hearing distance. It helps with the resonance of the sound. It helps to activate certain things on the surface of the plant, and they'll come from nighttime repose as well and start to move. Now, also, of course, they respond to sunlight, but the scientists have also proven that trees do go into repose at night. We can't perceive this unless we watch it with time-lapse photography. All the branches and leaves dropped a few centimetres, sometimes up to six or seven centimetres, sometimes less, and the trees slowed down. Trees have a heartbeat, and they've measured the heartbeat. At nighttime, the heartbeat, which was what was going on inside with the flowing of energy and, and sap, slows right down, as does the human heart. So at nighttime, everything goes into repose, except ruru, of course, and uh, night flying insects, which eat our veggies. There's um, a heart math institute. It would be really interesting to see the effect of plants and trees. Um, on the human and how it would bring about the coherence, eh? Because they've done it about the resonance between two people and animals and things like that. Or do you know something about that? This was uh, published in 2019. Trees are the most spiritually advanced living beings on the earth who are constantly in a meditative state and subtle energy is what they speak as a language. And trees can help open your energy channels and help them reciprocate with healing their blockages. A relationship with a tree is a mutually beneficial one which needs to be nourished. And so Taoist uh, masters from China observed that trees not only have the power to convert carbon dioxide into oxygen, but they have the capacity to absorb any negative energy and convert into something useful. The trees are firmly rooted in the earth, and the more firm the trees are rooted in the earth, the higher they reach the heavens above. Trees are the wisest absorbing the vital energies from the earth and universal forces from the higher dimensions. So as spiritually advanced beings, they coexist with nature and human beings. They're quite intelligent. And of course, they are there to aid humans. We only have to recognize them. It's an interesting phrase came out here uh, in my studies. And this is from a, an Italian professor from uh, a northern Italian university. And he's a plant biologist. And he said, most people suffer from tree or plant blindness. 
And he said, it is so easy. And the example that I put together is we take trees and plants so much for granted, most people, that they're in the background. Mm-hmm. If they weren't in the background, we might miss them, but then again, we might not. So the example I give is, okay, you leave your home uh, to go to work. You come out the front door and, and the cat's sitting in the sun on the porch. You say, hello, pussycat, how are you? Walk down the drive and your little dog has run over and he's panting away there saying, okay, goodbye, see you later. A thrush maybe singing away near you and say, oh, God, that song thrush sounds so good. But you've gone past all the standard roses. You've gone past some big trees you've got there. You haven't acknowledged them. They're doing their stuff continuously. But we've, we're blind to that. So that's what they're calling plant blindness. We've just got to become more aware of trees and plants are so, so important to us. And that, we can't overstress. That's interesting, isn't it? I can't overstress that. Um, there may be some distant plant trying to come in there from somewhere. <laughs> amazing, isn't it? Yeah, amazing. You were telling me last night that it's only really within the last decade that you've dived into the communication between plant and sound and things. So what sparked that and, and where are you now and where are you hoping to go? Well, who knows where I'm going, but what really sparked it probably was having what is commonly known now as a near-death experience in about 1973. Unbeknown to me, in a way, I was uh, very allergic to uh, bee venom, and I went into anaphylactic shock, thrown in the back of a motor vehicle and travelled um, 12, 15 miles to try and get to the nearest doctor. And by the time uh, I got there, which was quite a long journey from a rural place into the town of Huntley in the Waikato, uh, I died. The next thing I remember... I was going down this incredible tunnel and I was aware that there was someone guiding me on the side there. There was colour and there was sound, but I don't remember much about the sound. And this was an ever-curving tunnel as I was moving down, almost as if I was floating along and I was going down this tunnel around the corner. I couldn't see all the way around the corner. Suddenly, uh, I heard a voice came through. It was a very human voice and it turned out to be the doctor's voice. Three guys had manhandled me and carried me in and put me on a table in the doctor's back room. And he managed to bring me around by giving me an injection straight in the heart. And I heard the voice saying, I think we've got him. I think he'll come around. My first reaction was, I remember so vividly saying, no, 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 leave me alone. I don't want to come back. And I had no thought of my darling wife, my business and my four children. They weren't in my thinking. I was going to where I was supposed to be going. I can liken this now to be going home. I don't know where home was. I don't know what it's going to be like. I did not have an experience where a lot of people do. They come out and they meet um, uh, ancestors and relatives and Christ or God who tells them to go back. You've got more work today. Nothing like that. In those days, um, I didn't even know what the experience was. There's no such thing in my literature as a near-death experience. So I conveyed it all to Raven. Now, the thing was that it was such a terrible physical occurrence. I was bedridden for weeks. And I likened it to laying a silk scarf on a rose bush and trying to remove the silk scarf and you can't help but tear it. And I felt my physical fabric had been torn. I was desperately ill, but I came right. But then slowly over the years, there's been very many levels of opening. That was a big turning point, And that sort of got me on an expansive journey. Also, this was right in the middle of uh, Ray and I's uh, hippie days. We were handcrafters and we moved around the country selling our wares and being very much aware of nature. The phrase in those days, you dropped out, joined it. And later on, we dropped out of that and joined back into mainstream. There doesn't seem to be any great revelations today. I think the revelations come when um, I might read a scientific report. Some scientists are now saying, for goodness sake, human race, do you realize that within 10 to 15 years, we're going to have to recognize plants as being sentient beings? It's interesting. A census was done about five years ago. Scientists were saying we're running out of trees, which are so important to our ecosystem. And I guess the, the plant music, of course, is one way that I can gauge how things are doing. I've got plants out here that uh, I go and record for people like Kawa Kawa if someone is not well and it's just to help people's well-being at the time. I'm not looking at curing people. Somehow. I do hold a, an honorary doctorate from the uh, Open Uni- University of Complementary Medicine, a doctor of science, but I'm not a practicing doctor. I was a researcher. So I guess so much of what you do is instinctual as well. I mean, you've acquired a wealth of knowledge and wisdom and you're just naturally curious, but it's 
instinctual what you do and it's recognizing the healing vibrations of our natural world plant world that's exactly right yeah so i promote this quite extensively i don't do it in any other way except on on facebook but i'm just getting ready to actually broaden my base and reach more people particularly with the music because the music is something that people can identify with a nice song you know sort of something um, that we're playing before in the background and it's very much background meditative music it's just lovely just to sit there and um, just realize that this is a plant singing to you but what i do is open to everybody everyone who's going to be listening to your podcast all they have to do is google up plant music and suddenly and there's two or three different organizations around the world who produce equipment that you can buy to bring into your own home and go into your own garden go into the forest down the road and listen to plant singing You can do this. Create your own music. Over the years, I've recorded the broccoli and the lettuce. I've recorded the rhubarb singing, the the fruit on the trees singing. Oh, how delightful. That would be fascinating. It's really bringing what is very alive so that we can perceive it on a much deeper level. Because as I said at the beginning, it's a world that is intangible. We may feel it. We can't explain what it is. But you're actually bringing it to life, which is fascinating. Yeah, if people can actually have a little explanation of why they feel the way that they do so it's not mad to talk to your plants or anything like that because they're picking up the vibes and it's the energy that's that is around them fantastic well we could talk forever always round my interviews off with them the same four questions so the first of which is is there a book and or a person that has influenced you in your life and if so how i would say probably the biggest influence which opened the doorway into uh, landscapes and sacred places around New Zealand, and of course the forest, was The Song of Waitaha. That was one important book because that just opened up the pure spiritual nature of the waters and the forests and the shores and the mountains of New Zealand. I imagine being so close to nature that it would inspire you anyway, but do you have any inspirational quotes that help? One quote which has always been very, very important and So often um, I can quote it in certain circumstances, you'll understand why. And this is from uh, Kalu Gabran, a prophet. And uh, your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life, longing for itself. You may give them your love, but not your thoughts, for they have their own thoughts. You may house their bodies, but not their soul, for their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow. Very, very important thing there, mainly because... um, and this has happened twice in our lives where we've had a young child and our lives die or pass. And there has to be a reasonable explanation for that. And so that was something which was uh, very uplifting. It's attachment to children. You know, we can't help that. But also for all the sort of wrong reasons, because they're not ours. We've got them in our care. You know, we have provided the means of them incarnating spiritually into the human form, this life around and it's our responsibility to nurture them through those formative years and put them in good stead and put them on, the, on their pathway. But we can't control them. And that's where a lot of people, of course, find when the children get to their teenage years and then the early 20s, how they become rebels and they won't listen to their parents. You know, we just can't assert uh, the control we used to have over them. And as you know, too, that children are very, very open up to about the age of seven, five, six or seven. And all the children... That I've spoken to who have had fairy experiences when they were young. Some of them will share them, but when they get to go to school and they become uh, involved with their peer pressures at school, all the fairy realm things disappear. But some of them have had amazing connections with fairies. And of course, we've always looked upon this as being the play of children, the little girls sitting um, in the garden having a tea party with unseen guests there. She can see them. She knows they're there. And we've seen them having conversations with them. It's really the messages don't dismiss the magic of what we can't see. That um, poem is my most favourite poem of all time as well. I absolutely love it. it. It's so profound on so many levels, as is a lot it of is. Carlyle's work. Yeah. So what do you do if you're feeling in a funk or down and out? Do you go and talk to your plants or listen to your plant music, I guess? Well, I, I guess in a way, feeling down and out, you know, I've had some health challenges in the last couple of years, some quite big ones. And if you don't watch out, you're on medications, 
you know, and they have side effects and you can get quite down to it. And you could almost become depressed uh, yeah. clinically in a way. Okay, so you've got to be guard against this. You've got to be able to pull yourself out. You can't meditate, just contemplate. Listen to your favourite music. There's no sort of one-off remedy. Uh, and I think everyone can find their own way of coping. Coping with with deep sorrow, of course, as you know, as a psychologist, is, is quite different. I, I must tell you a little story. Years ago, we lost uh, our oldest daughter when she was 11. She died of a strange disease. And, of course, I held that in here. And we were so sad as parents, you know. And that's where Khalil Gurban's saying first came to life for us. And um, I got to a stage, though, where I, I got down to it, thinking about her, thinking about life and who I was. And this was um, in the late 70s, actually. And I sat at the couch and I was curled up in the corner of the couch, no one else owned, Well, my aunt's father thinking, God, you'll have to go on living in this life. So I asked myself the stupid question. Um, okay, so what if I kick the bucket down? And I said, it would be so easy for me to do. All I have to do is get up from here, go out through the sliding doors into the garden, to the flower garden, find a bee, put it in my hand, and let it sting me, and I'd be gone. So I went through this funny trip, sitting in the lounge there, and I looked down. On my shirt, there was a bee crawling up my shirt inside <gasps> the lounge. I looked down, and I said, God, if you really called me up on this one. So I very gently stood up, went outside, and shook the bee off on the plants. And that snapped me out of it. Who would ever think that would ever happen? So coping, I, I learned then to perhaps cope with the down times, um, to read something, to listen to something, uh, go for a walk if you can, if you're ambulatory, if you are bound to home with an injury and you've got a wheelchair or can only get up in the car, get someone to take you to the beach, even if you can't walk on the beach. Just, just sit there on a seat or look at it. Or if you can look out your window, just look at the trees and plants. I just see that as in it, the bee. It's kind of brought you to your senses. And it is our senses that if we take the time to deepen the connection to the senses, we will perceive more. We don't actually have to necessarily, if you can't physically be in the environment, we can use our imagination to bring the environment inside because the body doesn't know. And that will actually activate the cells in the body and gets the happy juices, as I like to call them, going around, which is so, so important. I love that, the happy juices. And I often say to people when I'm doing my presentations too, if you do come to a time in your life where things are crowding in on you a bit and you're sitting at home, they're sort of huddled up, you know, what will I do next? If you do have a photo album and photographs on, get into that album go through and look at the photographs from 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. I say to people too, when you go into the forest and if you're looking for things in the forest, you're looking for clues to the elemental beings or the fairy beings, which may be there and you just can't see them with the eye because by gosh, some of them can hide very, very well. They're shapeshifters. When you go into a new place like this, got a camera nowadays with our smartphones, look on your screen or put them on your computer, then look closer and enlarge it. You may be surprised yeah. What you're going to see peeping out between the leaves at you. It may be that your imagination comes to work and you join together reflections on two leaves and makes a face. Say, oh, look at that face there. That was there all the time and I never saw it. So once again, the beauty of photographs. It's a bit like when you're cloud watching, you know, you can, using the imagination, which is the most powerful thing that we as humans have, to bring something into form. We can do it with the shadows um from photos and leaves and things. So on that beautiful note, is there one thing that you would like to change in the world? And if so, what would it be and why? That's an interesting question. I haven't got the capacity to change anything. All I can do is initiate certain things which may allow other people to bring out changes in their lives. So I just look at sharing. I've always been the one, uh, all the writings I've done, dozens and dozens of magazine articles and written and spoken so often uh, online and all over the place. And everything I say, it's not mine, it's yours. I've done it for you and I'm sharing it with you. And so I just hope that with whatever I have said to you today or what you've read today, there's going to be one line or one paragraph which will impact on you. And this will help to make a difference to you. And from this point, 
you can go on sharing. So I liken myself and what I like to achieve is I'm dropping pebbles in the pond continuously and the ripples just keep going out. And that will bring in change. Not the change that I would say, I'd like this to happen, this to happen, this to happen. You know, I want world peace and, and I want less poverty and I want everyone to live to be 200 years old, heaven forbid. Um, I don't I think I'm happy enough trouble at 80, 84 years, we've like 200 years. <laughs> so no, that's it. And so share with people, open up to people, don't hold what you have. Sometimes it's very hard to find a person that you're really overflowing with information. And I've just discovered this, or I've had an incredible experience from my meditation, or that tree spoke to me, you know, when I put my hands on it. You've got to find somewhere you can share this. Mm. And of course, social media allows us. And also, there are so many groups that you could join in with nowadays where you could openly share these things and then listen or watch what other people have to share with you. So I just want to see more openness, more sharing. I'd like to see more openness in government and authority, no hidden agendas. Uh, sometimes today they feel that we have to be protected from ourselves. But we, we just uh, we jive at all that, particularly people in our age group. We've been free. Our lives have been so free. We've been able to go where we like and do virtually what we like. Mm. And now a lot of people are seeing restrictions coming, whether it's mandates or wearing a mask. It's a big sort of um, bubbling pot of all sorts of things happening at the moment and people out there with big sticks stirring up. But it's good because if it all comes to a head and bubbles up, that's where the solutions are going to come. Mm. There's going to be so many people out there like yourself and, and others we know to open up uh, avenues or channels of communication and also enlighten other people on what they can do and get them going on their journey. And I used to often say to people, listen, I'm out there all over New Zealand reporting on all these sacred places and what I'm finding. You can be doing exactly the same. Don't be a couch potato. Don't sit there and read the magazine. I said, for goodness sake, go and do it yourself. If I can do it, you can do it. When I look at people's stories, there's something inside us that really excites us. And it's really following that intuition and knowing that that information is of value. It may not change the world, but it is uplifting and it shifts the frequency and helps us know our own value and our sense of value within the community which is ultimately what it's all about and bringing all this right. information together I can remember on the start of my journey you know I created this amazing process and there's always that fear that it's mine 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 but yeah. as you said it is coming to that understanding it has come to me for a reason to share and that is the purpose. It's like, I don't want any dependence on it. This is for you to implement yourself and to share with likewise others. And hopefully it will just expand the world and deepen the connection that we have to nature. On that note, Gary, I'm going to thank you so much for your blessed wisdom and for bringing us closer to nature with these fantastic sounds. Do you think you could... Um, Turn the volume on up on that music so that we can leave with that in the background. Here we go. to get one of those gizmos Gary talked about so I can tune into my own environment and even explore the different vibrations from the crystals I have. Hearing the plant music reminded me of the Judy Dench documentary My Passion for Trees. She couldn't contain her excitement when she heard the sound of her beloved trees from her own garden that she'd nurtured for the past 20 years. I have an exciting lineup of guests over the next month who are all involved in regenerating our environment. 
Next week, Richard Robbins from the conservation group Project Birdsong will be joining me to talk about the extraordinary ecological restoration of the archipelago of islands known as Ipipiri in the Bay of Islands here in New Zealand. Make sure you follow or subscribe to the podcast on your preferred platform, be it Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Samsung Podcasts and my YouTube channel so you don't miss out on these juicy gems. Don't forget to get in touch if you have a subject or guest you'd like me to consider. My email is info at philiparos.com. So until next week, dig deep, open your mind to a world of possibilities, live life with a generous heart and take steps to minimise waste and maximise your own potential.